I'm hoping I'm a free Is there opportunity? Broken records of the past Does anything really last? And welcome to episode 75 of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. I am your host, Adam C. McKinnon. My guest today is one of my, if not my, favorite fantasy baseball writers. Apologies to Scott White. Uh, Chris Towers uh, from CBS. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for the for the kind introduction. I I always I always feel awkward when people do the introduction when I come on their podcast and they like say nice <laughs> things about me and they build me up and it's like oh man I'm gonna disappoint these people. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like do do you really know me? Like do you yeah, know? Me? Like do, set do the you... bar low. I like to exceed expectations. Right. I it's like the reverse. Over. I like to trip over the finish line. You know? It's the reverse. Do you know who I am? Like you know exactly. I I feel the I feel the same way. Yeah. So. We're, uh, it's been, it's been a weird time. I think we can all unanimously agree on that, but I'm especially curious as someone who, uh, anyone of anyone from my fantasy league that's listening to this, I'm going to admit that I've been in the same fantasy league for baseball league for 21 years. I've never won. I'm only two years away from the Oakland and I, so I'm, you could say I'm an enthusiast, but, um, it's had an interesting last couple of years, shortened mm-hmm. seasons in 2020, uh, you know, weird seasons all across other sports too. basketball had the bubble fantasy football. COVID presented some really wild <laughs> scenarios for that. And I'm just curious from a, an analyst perspective, it's, you know, one thing to be a participant and have all this going around you, you know, in your neighborhood league or your work league or something. But as a, as a fantasy expert and analyst and on a, on a platform where you uh, have, you have a lot of people watching your Mm -hmm. input, how, what has this stretch of time, including up to now with the lockout taught you, you that you would never have experienced in a normal in a normal uh, path, normal timeline, I guess. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that as a fantasy analyst, I like to really hammer home in a lot of the things I talk about is just how much we don't know or can't know really just how unpredictable it is. You know, there's, there's just so much, especially in, in a sport like baseball, where there are so many factors over the course of 162 game season. Um, and, you know, where we understand that 162 games, probably isn't a big enough sample size in most cases to say definitively whether a player changed his skill set or what that player skills like the sample sizes you need for all these things are so big and what the last couple of years have have really made difficult is like we don't even have that sample size you know we've had a 60 game season but then we had last season when a bunch of minor league players didn't play in competitive games for a whole year so we had a lot of rookies get called up last season and just really struggle. And we have no idea whether that was because they just didn't progress the way we hoped they would, or whether it was just like these guys didn't see live action. And then we have guys who didn't play in 2020 who come out in 2021. They look awesome and they look way better than they ever have. And it's like, well, what was that? And then we have (laughs) the baseball, the fundamental thing that the game is built around is different on a game to game basis on a game to game basis thanks to bradford davis and bradford davis's report where they were using two of them that's that is wild (laughs) and so it's it's like 
I think the the thing that over the past couple of years, and, and it's also true, I mean, I don't write about fantasy basketball anymore, but I used to, but I am playing in a couple of leagues still. And there was that stretch in December where like nobody was playing <laughs> when like Joe Johnson got called back to the <laughs> league and like guys who you had either never heard of or who were like the fourth man on a decent college team are all of a sudden like putting up decent numbers in the NBA. And it, it like the NFL had some similar situations where, you know, we had Lamar Jackson missing games two years in a row because of COVID. We had whole receiving rooms for the Browns in 2020 or 2021 at one mm-hmm. point not playing. And so it's just the one thing that it's really highlighted for me is the, the value of one embracing what we don't know and embracing chaos and embracing uncertainty and building strategies around that, but also just how much we in fantasy talk about players and try to predict this player is going to be better than this player. And what I think is actually valuable as a fantasy player, as a fantasy analyst, and something that I do try to do in my analysis when I can is like, the specific players don't matter that much because their circumstances are, are different and there's things going on that we just don't know about. We were talking last on, on uh, Friday's episode of the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast about Trevor Rogers last season, who was one of the best pitchers in baseball. He's this rookie who came out of nowhere, basically. He was like a fringe prospect who added a couple miles per hour and all of a sudden he made the all-star game. He was awesome. And then he wasn't great in July. Then he had some kind of family issue and he was not with the team for like a month. And then he came back and again, he wasn't as good. And it's like, well, was that him not having the, the first half being a mirage? Was it the fact that he hadn't thrown that many innings in a couple of seasons or was it just like, his mind was in another place. How that yeah. affected him. Like that, that's something that like it's unknowable. And it's and it's hard to include unknowable things in fantasy analysis, but like we all know if you're not having a good day, there's some days at work where you're just you can't do anything because you're distracted. And I feel like, or you're just not there mentally, or you're just having a bad day. And I feel like <clears throat> that's happening a lot right now. And um it's hard to know when you're talking about fantasy sports. And obviously that's a, like a third order concern when we're talking about, you know, people's lives, but you know, for the job, it's hard to know how much that impacts a player. And so it, it, there's just so much on a player level that we either can't know or can't predict or whatever that, it's really driven home how important having like a, a sound underlying strategy. And so it's less about <clears throat> like one thing that I've always talked about for football and baseball is the fungibility and unpredictability of running backs and starting pitchers respectively. And they both kind of have similar trends where running backs in fantasy football who are drafted in the first two to three rounds are generally the most valuable assets in the, in the game and are also really, really predictable. First and second round running backs actually hit over the last five years at a higher rate than first and second round wide receivers. So that's really good. And there's a reason those guys are super valuable. The problem is once you get to the fourth round, and it's true of starting pitchers as well, once you get to the fourth round, 
there's basically at both pitcher and running back, which is, it's interesting that these trends are so similar in two right. very different sports, but yeah, fourth, it's true. F- fourth round to about the 10th or 12th round, there's really no difference in how often you get a good season out of a pick or, and how good those players tend to be. It's weird. It doesn't make any sense. You would think a fourth rounder would be more valuable than a 10th rounder, but historically that tends to not be true. And so that is like one of my lodestar principles when I'm, you know, analyzing fantasy, fantasy sports is like, we were talking, we were talking, this was actually the range of pitchers we were talking about in yesterday's podcast. And it's like, well, I like this guy and I like this guy and I like this guy. And it's like, but you have to understand that like, this this range of pitchers historically hits at well below a 50% rate. More than half of these guys are going to bust. And so it's like, it's sort of a fool's errand to try to be like, but this guy's not. Yeah, right. And like, you might be right, but they're all going in that same range. We're, we're trying, we're telling ourselves all of these guys are the exceptions and they're not. And so it, I think the the way the last few years have have changed how I approach analyzing and playing is just, trying to focus less on the individual players, although that stuff still matters and trying to more fit my analysis into what I know are, you know, historical trends about how people draft the flaws in how people draft and where certain trends go. So that's, that's probably the biggest lesson, I guess. I think, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I, my day job, I'm a software engineer and I just, I, I can't, imagine having analysts analyze the work that I do on publicly available websites that just, and like, and, and have people like, I just can't imagine that, which is why I believe players should get whatever they want to get paid because I, it's like you have people analyzing how you do your job publicly. It's amazing. And and so, I mean that, that, that whole thing is just like, yeah, there's also like, (laughs) we know to the penny how much player, how much each player makes. And like, if they go over a certain inning threshold, we know how much bonus money they get. Right. We have no idea how much managers get paid unless it gets reported. We have no idea how much coaches or GMs or anybody gets paid. And it's like, well, that tends to, uh, that yeah. tends to lead to an imbalance <laughs> in how we view things. Cause it's like, it's a matter oh, of perception. These- yeah, it like gives us something. I think it gives us something today and a very, cause I think you would agree that, uh, you know, I feel like the average fan, the education level has been raised and on top the accessibility to data has turned us into, uh, a sort of, uh, I guess you could say it turned us into the, the world of the amateurs. We're amateur analysts mm-hmm. across the world. So we're always trying to prove something and the only we're only using the data we get and that in yeah. this case is you know short of the short of the Atlanta Atlanta baseball team short of that all we have is players and so they yep. become the object of derision and the object of <clears throat> we can't quantify anything else so we're going to quantify you cuz i have access to your salary kind of yeah, weird I mean, right the whole thing is built on that imbalance of data like the the way that the the ownership and and mlb or or any of the leagues have um have uh sorry i got distracted the way the ownership and some of the leagues have 
you know, built their like public relations strategy is built on the idea that we don't know what goes into it. And so anytime we see the Atlanta Braves, you know, made $20 million in operating income in 2021 and $111 million in some an acronym that I don't understand. In- yeah. Something about a depreciation. I, I don't know. My, my I was a Cobb County yeah, resident during that time. Yeah. So yeah. like, but that's part of my tax dollars going into that. I don't, I don't even yeah, know. Yeah. And so there's um, like, you know, the Braves lost $59 million or whatever it was in, in 2020. And we can actually like, we know that yeah. because we saw it. Although right. what that actually means and where that money comes from and how much of it was actually related to baseball, uh, costs versus their various real estate holdings is and there's all kinds of stuff that they do where they invest money into these real estate ventures that goes on the team's books but then the profits and revenues from that don't necessarily have to be included and so it's, it's all kinds of see also the rogers yeah, corporation shall... in toronto <laughs> but we can actually look at the braves made x dollars mm-hmm. and then when that happens we also get Yeah, but you don't know what that actually means. The team, you know, you you get people connected with the teams who say, but it's not really like that or they're the outlier. And it's like, it's possible that the Atlanta Braves are just the outlier. They did win the World Series last year. That that helps your revenues a lot because you don't really pay the players for the postseason. They get like a bonus pool. But You're paying Ozzy um, Albies and Ronald Acuna like insanely below market value. And your your MVP for each playoff round was a mid- season acquisition yeah. for nothing. And so you you have it's entirely possible that most teams are as cash poor as MLB would like you to think and the Atlanta Braves and are just the one outlier that we happen to know about, but it seems unlikely. Yeah. You don't you don't hide you don't hide your books if you're not trying to hide money. But um yeah. you know and that's the thing is like you know it's it's become a a guessing game. And, you know, on so many levels. Um, But but one thing I can tell you that we are we're not uh, necessarily guessing at is a trend is a trend within the industry, not just the fantasy industry, but, you know, with Mm -hmm. with sports betting and, and things like that, as that continues to grow and balloon, is that there is a there there's it's very monochromatic in the in the way it's represented. I think uh, according to FSGA, as recently as 2019, 81% of fantasy players were men. And Mm -hmm. I'm willing to bet a whole big chunk of that are white men. Yes. And I think when you look at the industries, fantasy sports, and I'm not, you know, by no means am I saying like, Chris Towers, give me the answers here. But like, you know, how does this industry avoid the whole, you know, white dude bros club veneer you know how what what can be is there anything that can be done about that it's a really tough discussion to have because anytime like you're in a position like i have been where i was in a leadership role at a big company it's like anytime you try to talk about it people will say well why why you had the opportunity to change it and it's like yeah but there there are these structural forces that that make it really difficult to do that and and i think the bigger issue it's People always, when we have these topic, these discussions about structural issues, we often tend to focus on like individual actors or individual people, or we say, well, look at this person who, you know, has made it this far. So how, how can you say that 
you know, this industry is not inclusive of, you know, people of color and, and women or, you know, non-binary people. And um, the, the thing is that it's just, it's a, it's one, it's a microcosm of journalism or media in general in that to get into media, there's so much competition and the, the powers that be know that there's so much competition that it drives salaries down and it creates incentives where people are willing to work for little or no pay in order to get the opportunity to work in that uh, business. Because, you know, a lot of people view like working in the business as a, uh, as like a form of compensation on its own almost, right. you know, like, well, I do this for free. I like, do this in, in my spare time. And so like the job you know, itself is the for, merit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> that creates a situation where if you can't work for free or for little pay or crazy long hours. And, you know, I, I used to work 5 PM to 3 AM <clears throat> and that was really tough for a long time. And if you can't do that, your chances of making it in this industry, if you can't write for free, even if it's one time a week, you know, if you just don't have that kind of luxury, it's going, it creates a filter for it. And a lot of people will say, well, that filters out people who don't really want it. And that's not true. Right. You know, it it filters out people who don't have the luxury to, you know, write for free or spend their free time doing something for very little compensation. And then, and again, it's not about the individual websites that have writers working for free. It's not, it's an industry-wide problem that devalues the, <clears throat> devalues labor, basically. Right. It's created and, a, uh, it's created an interesting dichotomy because it's, it's very much born out of the amateur, like we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So like you start a website and, uh, you know, you're uh, just a, a person starting a website you can't afford to payroll or bankroll Mm -hmm. writers so you people there's a plethora of writers they come to write for you for free is it and how can you fault that because then you're if you tell turn to them and say well you can't start a site well now you're gatekeeping and then it then it becomes the it's almost like a cycle right where you're either too accessible where you can't uh, support the talent or mm-hmm. you're too close too closed off and the talent can't get in. Yeah. And then that's why it's not about individual sites. It's not about the decisions that individuals make. It's about this collective thing that we do. And, and, you know, to, to bring it back more specifically to the idea of the industry, not being representative of society as a whole, or even sports fans as a whole, you know, mm-hmm. women make up a much larger percentage of, sports fans than of fantasy players. And, you know, I I think one thing that is hard to do is active outreach. And that is, it just, it requires more work on the part of, you know, participants in the industry and then, you know, people who are doing hiring, like you can't, if you want, if you actively want the makeup of an industry to look different than it does to be more representative, you it necessarily requires you to go outside of the traditional hiring channels that the the industry usually works from and it requires you to um you know potentially hire people with different credentials than you typically do not necessarily 
lesser credentials, but just, you know, taking, taking the opportunity to say, I can help mold this person into what we typically hire. And there's value in that in and of itself, because having different viewpoints and different voices just has value in terms of like creating less groupthink and introducing new ideas. And so it's, it's really difficult. It's a, it's a really thorny question. It's a really difficult question. And it's the kind of question that tends to make people either take offense or take it personally or take it as a specific criticism, but it's not, it's never about the individual actors or it's almost never about the individual actors. Sure. Obviously there are examples in every industry of, of bad actors, but predatory. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but it's, it's about like a culture that is very monog or mono monolithic monolithic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I knew um, you were going to get there. I'm a word person. Yeah. That's, that's my job. Um, and it's, um, it's the kind of thing where, you know, if people don't see themselves in a, in a space that might make them feel less comfortable in joining that space. And I think the fantasy industry has gotten better about that. There are more, women and people of color voices in the industry in prominent roles, but we still have a lot of work to do there. And I think that's a big part of why the, the people who play the game, you know, tend to reflect the way that the, the people who write about and talk about the game have looked for a long time. And so, you know, it's, it's not something that you can just do by fiat. You know, you can't just yeah. say, okay, we're more diverse now. You know, it requires, work over a long amount of time and it requires active work. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, so. I, I think you, I think you, you hit it there. Like, you know, having, cause on top of that, not just from the media side, but from the player side, you kind of have disposable income to, to play, you know, on a, on a yeah. high level and, and not everyone has that. And that I don't think I'm being, I'm going out on a limb by saying in communities of color, that is a, a larger issue is having the, mm -hmm. the disposable income. Um, and again, there's tons of nuance to things like that. Yeah. But I think when you automatically, when you make an industry leveraged on having disposable income or playing a game that requires an entry fee, I don't care where you are. It's the same reason that uh, kids uh, are priced out of playing baseball at a young age because yeah. the equipment is so expensive. Mm -hmm. um, it's the same reason that people are priced out of going to NFL games because NFL games are, you know, are very expensive. I mean, they were, I haven't yeah. been to one in years, but like, I, I know that they are quite expensive. Um, I don't, I don't actually enjoy going to football games. You know, I not, like watching yeah. football, but like the experience of being at a game is not great. Yeah, it's I could see that, and and I have a lot of dead time, you know. Yeah, and, and oh, don't tell the baseball guy there's too much dead time <laughs> when you go to well, a see, game. Yeah, but I, I love that about a baseball. Like when I'm at a baseball game, you know, be, being at a baseball game is as much about like talking to the people around you and you know the experience uh, and all that as like watching baseball. That's that's part of the part of the, the joy. That it's love. that's yeah. what makes it pastoral, right?
is so this is the the other part of of what I wanted to talk about, and I think is really important, but also again a little bit of a thorny issue because mm-hmm. I'm asking you to do to answer questions that a step outside of of you of what you're supposed to do of your role. So like, I think one of the most noticeable times where we see the fantasy versus reality line kind of get crossed or blurred is when you have situations like Marcelo Zuna, like Trevor Bauer on a higher level where real life situations affect, you know, for those of us who have been playing fantasy for a while, it was Jose Reyes. It was Alex Rodriguez. Um, things that like affect real life and affect mm-hmm. your perception of real life. Mm-hmm. So, how do you grapple with this? Do you at all? Because I think it's so important to remember you have a job to do, mm-hmm. you know, you have a job to do that is directly you're required to tether from that because people still want to hear the value of Trevor Bauer going mm-hmm. into next season of Marcelo Zuna is the, you know, how will the DH affect his playing time and what he does? Yeah. Um, what is the tell me how you approach this what are your thoughts on it does it affect it or does the sort of professional side of the brain have to kick in and isolate out every all the other things i think it's it's a a lot of all of those things you Mm -hmm. know it, it when it comes to like i i caught some heat in the fantasy space recently for saying that until we know trevor bauer's status from major league baseball I'm not going to rank him or talk about him because I just, and, and people took that as like, Oh, you're passing judgment on him or, Oh, you're not helping the people who follow you. And it's like, you can say what you want and I'm not going to tell anybody else how to do this version of their job because it's, Mm -hmm. it's a difficult thing. There's no SOP for this (laughs) from a, just from a practical standpoint, what I know about Trevor Bauer right now is the same as every single person playing fantasy sports. Mm -hmm. Like it's going, if he is cleared to play next season for 2021, 2022, we're going to have to talk about it. Like that's just, there's no way to get around it, but I'm not going to tell someone whether they should or shouldn't draft Trevor Bauer when I don't even know how likely it is that he's going to play. I still think there's a very good chance that he just doesn't play in 2022. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we still, one, don't know how the league is going to handle discipline. There is absolutely precedent for players being suspended for a full year without uh, charges being filed. That that happened with Sam Dyson of the Texas Rangers. Right. Um, we don't know how the Dodgers are going to react because there were a lot of reports last season that nobody in the Dodgers locker room wanted him back. And so it all just gets from a strictly as from a perspective of just my job, there is no value I can provide because it comes down to how you assess the risk of him being suspended or not. And I don't have any special information in that regard. So like if another analyst wants to say, well, I think he's worth a a risk in the 10th round or 15th round, like, okay, that's, you have to do your job. And then that's how you want to do your job. Me, I don't feel like, if I genuinely don't know, I mean, we talked about it earlier. There's a lot we don't know, and there's a lot that's uncertain about all of what we do. But this is a situation where we genuinely do not know and cannot know right now whether right. he's going to play. 
And I'm not going to pretend I do because people want to know if they should draft him. Like that's the decision you have to make. That's it's a decision that you have to come to regarding whether he's going to play. And so that's, that's how I'm handling that right now. If, you know, Marcelo Zuna is cleared to play, he got time served on his suspension and he is eligible to play starting on opening day. And that case is, there's also some weird stuff with the police lying on the initial police report in a way that didn't match their body cameras, which gets into a whole nother a whole <laughs> string of other issues. Yeah. Um, and so that one is in a murkier place ethically, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but strictly from the job perspective, like he's a really good hitter. And as long as the Braves want him around, you should draft him. Like yeah. that's it. I hate to like the human part of me hates to just say that just break it down to the the brass tacks of it but that is my job right and so i have my own personal feelings i i my preference would be to not have to watch trevor bauer play baseball because even there's a difference between not being charged for something and having done something wrong and that is I just, I, I think he did something wrong. My preference would be that I like, I wouldn't want to watch him play baseball this year. Right. There's a, um, there, I think you're, you're, te- you're, you're hitting on it where you're right. Like you, there is a job that a service of which you are paid to provide that is completely divorced mm-hmm. in its own way from, mm-hmm. from the reality of how maybe you personally feel about about what's going on and i think you know this that's a level of nuance that social media is not going to grant you but like <laughs> at the same time you know that's something i think about too is like you know my, my wife works with um victims of domestic violence mm-hmm. so marcelo zuna was charged in a county of which she worked and so when my daughter four-year-old four-year-old kid she says she the first player she learned on the atlanta braves which i'm a you know lifetime fan of the big bear, Marcelo Zuna. So there's there's a special personal thing where I'm like, mm-hmm. mm, that's super uncomfortable. Yeah. And then the Trevor Bauer end of it, I mean, my credit to my wife on this podcast, she called every step of the Bauer case. And she said, nope, he's, mm. they're not going to grant it. He's going to go, he's not going to get charged. But there is a, and that's what I think is is hard because again, you have very, uh, for all intents and purposes, monochromatic player pool in the mm-hmm. fantasy world that's going to see someone like Trevor Bauer a certain way. And that what you talked about, the sort of unique viewpoints are not considered because they're underrepresented. And I think that probably drives that whole uncomfortable yeah. Yeah. discourse. And it, it's tough because like there is the like, there's the you have to do the part of the job and then there's the the reaction to the part of the job where you know people get mad when fantasy analysts talk about it in the immediate aftermath and like that's perfectly understandable and it it's sort of a like it's hard to win either way Mm -hmm. and then it's 
it's a difficult thing to have to grapple with because again, it is the job and there's, you know, you, you have to do the job. Um, so that, that's a really, it's just a difficult thing to, to grapple with as, as an analyst. And I do think there are ways to be, uh, to handle it that are, you know, more careful. And there are ways to phrase things that don't just strip it of context and don't just strip it of, you know, the, the human part of it. But, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing where you can't not talk about it. Right. And so finding the right way to is that's also the job. Yeah. You know, like you have to talk about it, but you also, as with anything in this job, like communication is the job. You know, you have to, you have to figure out how to best communicate with your audience. And if that means, you know, couching things or, or, or saying things with a, a little less bluntness in order to, you know, be cognizant of the the very real way that these discussions hurt people, you know, victims of, of sexual or domestic violence. Like it's not just like, I don't know this, this whole like, Oh, safe spaces or like trigger warnings, but like that, like that stuff matters. Yeah. And like, it needs to be said. If you've gone through trauma in life, experiencing that trauma can be really difficult. And like, or, or, hearing about versions of that trauma or just being reminded of it like that, that can have a, take a real psychic toll. And so I think it's incumbent on people who, you know, professional communicators to be cognizant of that. And it's something that a lot of normal journalists fail at constantly when it comes to these right. topics. And well, you're, you're, that, you're doing it in real time yeah. and, and you're, let's you know, let's also be real with the with the um, concessions of the job, like you are a fantasy baseball analyst, you're not a public relations manager, you're not an mm-hmm. expert on domestic yeah. violence. I mean, these are you know, and that's not a slight against you or anyone else. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it, it's the reality of the situation. I'm not going to walk into a kitchen and tell a chef how to cook, yeah. you know. And um, I think that's what makes this so sticky and something that we frankly maybe don't talk about enough because let's be honest, the, the fantasy content world is swimming. You know, if you're, if someone doesn't agree with Chris towers politics or Chris towers wants to take a few minutes to talk about the human element of this, mm-hmm. there's what 50 other podcasts that won't yeah. and yeah. will serve the, and they'll give you, you know, a sort of statistical or a quantitative analysis I, I think that's probably the tough the line that fantasy in particular fantasy analysts walk and I'm speaking for you and I apologize but like you know no. it, that they walk that is underappreciated I think yeah. in situations like this yeah it's it's I mean it's it's ultimately it's a microcosm of the 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 sports world in general and and really culture like pop culture you know that's it's a thing with a lot of musicians like i have mm-hmm. to grapple the, the beatles are you know that like the you know the thing i always say is like growing up in my, in my household the beatles were like oxygen yep like it wasn't like we didn't listen to the beatles they were just around and knowing that like john lennon was abusive to multiple wives to to several women right and having to 
grapple with what that means as far as the the way that I feel about the music that he made versus the person that he was. And obviously there's countless examples of this. And it, it's 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 always a tricky line to draw when you're talking about like a lot of people have this really strong like draw a line on Michael Jackson and that makes perfect sense. Right. Or R. Kelly. But we often don't draw the same line around Led Zeppelin. Right. Or David Bowie, who are documented as, you know, having had uh who having, you know, statutory rape, you know, in their in their background. Like they they there was there were underage groupies in that time. And it's um it's, it's a difficult, difficult thing to process just as a human being because, you know, the music that these people make is so important to us and all that. It's and culturally so we, unavoidable. It's, it's Yeah. And so we all make these kind of weird, uh, I don't want to say sacrifices, but draw these weird distinctions or arbitrary distinctions because the world is messy and the world is difficult and you know, I think uh, there's the episode of The Good Place where uh, Maya Rudolph, she's playing the judge Love the of, show. All, of all eternity. And she goes down to Earth to, to test out what it's like being human. And then there's the line that's like, did you know that there's a chicken sandwich that if you eat it, it means you hate gay people <laughs> and it's so delicious. And it's like, that's like that. That's one of the whole points of that show is that like, there is no perfect way to live yes. in a modern society. Like it's just, there's too much going on. And so we all make decisions about where we're going to draw the line or where we're going to separate the art from the artist. And that's a, it's a difficult thing for me as a fantasy player. Like, do I want Joe Mixon on my team? Do I want, you know, it's like, Dude, yeah, it's that's really difficult. It, it, well, and like, on top of that, you you're a you're somebody who the, everyone looks to, and like you yeah. know, and so now your draft board, if you, if Trevor Bauer shows up on your draft board, oh well, that's a tacit endorsement of Trevor yeah. Bauer. It's like, well, you know, I think the gist of it is there's a lot of nuance to this, and I think yes. we could have a whole nother show on on that. Yeah, and, um, and, and I try to not. I try when it comes to the people doing the job to not be as judgmental. Obviously there's yeah. like, there are people who just like are callous about it and that's a different thing. But when it's just like somebody offering analysis, I tr I try to be understanding of like, that's not how I would pursue it. That's not how I would have done it, but you're doing your job. Yeah. It, you're, I, I totally get that. Um, I want to end on a lighter note and I want you to tell me, why I'm the weird one because I like, I think 1989 is Taylor's best album. <laughs> That's the end of the point. I just, I just tell me why I'm the weird one. So I think you can make a very good case that 1989 is the most well-crafted album that she's made in terms of having a specific vision and following through on it like she had that that like i think a lot of people think red might be her best album red is all over i love i love red. red red is phenomenal but it's it's a mess in terms of like totally sonically agree. it's all over the place yes it's like it's a it's like a, a white album type of yeah, thing where it's yeah. just like 
it's just like different. I, and you can tell that's the point in her career where she was making the conscious transition from country singer songwriter to pop star. Mm-hmm. And so red is the transition period between uh, speak now, which is starting to get a little more pop, but still very much in the country milieu. And then 1989, which is just pop, just pure power pop. And so, you know, she makes a conscious decision to make that change in her career and her sound and her approach. And sorry, I had to cough. It's okay. And um, the execution of that vision, like every song on that album is really good. And it was, it was kind of annoying when Ryan Adams, who another yeah. problematic figure, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I was a huge Ryan Adams fan and he released the covers album of it. And I think it's really good. And I, I listened to it and I loved it. And, but it was really annoying when like Pitchfork reviewed that, but they never reviewed the original album. When it came right. Out. That's, that's not, uh, was, that's not telling, right? <laughs> yeah. And so it was like, oh, someone else had to, cover her for her to be taken seriously and i think the the songwriting on that album's great the the uh, sonically it's fantastic mm-hmm. um i would say i think um folklore is probably her best album i think that like it all comes together i think it's uh, uh, her songwriting is arguably the best it's ever been on that album the way she actually you know changes the way she writes songs from you know most things being from a first person perspective to uh multiple songs on that album being written about other people or from other people's perspective i think uh betty Mm -hmm. might be her most mature songwriting just because it it takes the the male character who in the past songs would have been the villain in her stories you know often was yeah to taking that perspective and having empathy for it. Yeah. And, and so I think that's like, I think that's an incredible song. And there's something about like Taylor Swift singing Betty. I was riding on my skateboard and like, it just like the portrait she portrayed, she presents of this, like, you know, dopey kid. Yeah. Um, is I think really compelling. And also, I'm a huge fan of the national. So uh, Aaron Desner being involved with that, that was like, <coughs> Oh my God, you're good. <laughs> so when, when she announced that she was making an album with him, like my wife woke me up at like seven 30 in the morning by saying, Oh my God, Chris. <laughs> and I was like, what did somebody die? And she and it was like, Oh no, this is just like the meeting of like two of my favorite bands slash artists um, oh my god so, yeah so yeah i fan I fanboyed out a little bit but yeah I, I think she is uh the best songwriter of her generation at least within the mainstream pop world i think she's like a springsteen level songwriter and i say that as a huge springsteen fan well you are a baseball uh, writer so it's required to be a well yeah obviously. yeah i mean you know, come on springsteen and jason isbell and, and taylor swift That's yeah of course three. yeah um and so, yeah, I think the the big three of her albums, it's 1989, it's Red, and it's Folklore for me. That's, I think Fearless is probably four. 
That's awesome. That's, you know, for as long, I've talked about a lot of weird subjects on this show, you know, outside of baseball. Uh, but I finally got to work Taylor Swift into the conversation. And if nothing else, that has made this a net win. Um, Chris, thank you so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. It was a good discussion.